We turn now to our reading from Acts chapter 16. Acts, as you may or may not know, is short for the Acts of the Apostles. It is the story of the early church, the story of men and women who shaped this thing that we know as our Christian faith, men like Paul and Silas, women like Tabitha and Lydia. It is a dramatic book full of speeches and shipwrecks and lots of adventures. In the verses before this reading today, Paul and Silas have gotten into trouble again. A group of rich merchants have gotten angry with them with one of their healing miracles, and they have dragged them before the authorities and given false accusations against them. The authorities have listened to these rich merchants rather than to Paul and Silas and have agreed to send them along to prison without even a trial. And so we get to these verses from Acts chapter 16, verse 23. After the authorities had given Paul and Silas a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Following these instructions, he put them in the innermost cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And at the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. And then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A lot of our texts today have language about God's power and God's might. But looking at this scripture story today, who has the power here? And who is powerless? We seem to have some clear signs to these questions, some clear answers. After all, we have men who are being flogged and the ones who are doing the flogging. We have magistrates with keys and locks and bars, and we have the people who are being shackled and imprisoned. We have those who are making accusations and those who are standing accused. These scenes give us some pretty strong indications of who is powerful and who is powerless here. And yet, there is more. We also have prisoners singing, singing hymns, and we have the other prisoners listening attentively to their songs. We have a jailer falling to his knees, begging to be saved. 
and we have the prisoners who are standing over him, preparing to answer his plea. We have locks that fall away and wounds that are washed. We have the magnifying might of God shaking the very walls of the prison with a fierce earthquake. And then at the end of the story, we have everyone sitting around a table, talking and listening to each other, jailer becoming host and student, prisoners becoming guests and teachers, all of them performing the most graciously sacred act of all, breaking bread and sharing a meal. In each of these situations, the powerful and the powerless are not as clear. The the person who assumes authority is not the one we always expect. Who is powerful here? Who is powerless? It is hard to know. It is hard to tell, and we want to be able to tell. We want to be able to tell who is powerful and who is powerless in this world, We want our lines to be clear, our allegiances and hierarchies to be distinct, manageable, measurable. We want to know that this guy has power over this guy and how much more power and how much more worth. We want to know that this woman is more respected than that woman and how and why we should judge her. We want our lines of power to be clear. We want to focus on the top dog, the righteous warrior, the one who clearly deserves the winner-take-all pile. We see this desire of ours play out in our politics, in our foreign policies, and in our justice system. We see this play out in our professional athletic leagues and our mommy wars and our public school education funding debates. Who is powerful and who is powerless Who is worth investing time and energy in, and who isn't? With whom do we want to ally ourselves, and who do we want to avoid? We appreciate it immensely when the power structures are very clear. And so did, indeed, the Roman Empire. Under the rule of the Roman Empire, if you were lucky enough to be counted as a Roman citizen, you received many privileges. You could have a trial. You couldn't be thrown into prison without a charge. And yet there are exceptions, and we see this with our story of Paul and Silas. Rich merchants are outraged, they make false accusations, and Paul and Silas are thrown into jail. And it is interesting and sad that the merchants use language that might sound familiar to our ears. They say, these men are Jews. They don't follow the same customs as we Romans do. They are disturbing the peace. These words might sound familiar to us. They are making it clear who is powerful and who is powerless here, who the us are and the them. These men are Jews. They aren't like us Romans. Now, Paul is a Jew, but he is also a Roman citizen and also a follower of Christ. All these facts are true, but in this world, in this story, no one is stopping to ask for nuance. No one is slowing down the process to consider that things might be more complicated than the merchants are pretending These words sound familiar to us because we have heard their sentiment across the generations. 
It is much easier to substitute other labels to put on top of people, to draw lines in the sand and put one group of people on one side and one group of people on the other. It is much easier to do this than to actually take time getting to know the fuller story. And so we can hear these words that are thrown at Paul and Silas, and we can imagine other labels being substituted. These people are Muslims. They aren't like us. These people are immigrants. They aren't like us. Who is powerful here? And who is powerless? These phrases are very effective at making clear the lines of power, one side or another, me versus you, us versus them, right versus wrong. And so Paul and Silas get thrown into jail without a trial. And indeed, we do need some lines and boundaries and rules to keep our world in order. We do need certain regulations and restrictions to keep things humming along. However, the problem arises when we see our lines of power and allegiance as permanent and self-justifying instead of fluid and mutually beneficial. The problem becomes the moment we think we've staked out the moral high ground and we can leave everyone behind. We hear the words of God's might today in the scriptures, in the psalm that Sue read, and we so often want to believe that we have staked out that high ground and we are standing on the highest tower and have abandoned everyone else. We decide who does and doesn't deserve to have power, and we keep wanting to draw a strong, firm line. So what happens when it is the Lord God Almighty who crosses the line, as it is in this story? What happens when the Lord of hosts is the one who shatters the boundaries and tear down, tears down the walls we have so carefully constructed? What happens when we look for Christ and those who are following Christ and we find that they are the very people we have locked up and locked out of power? Who has power here? Who is powerless? Stories like this complicate things. We would like to follow the path of least resistance, follow the lines that are laid out for us, fall in step behind the cultural expectations and the social status quo, and leave it at that. That is what the jailer in our story is doing today. He is just following orders. He is just going along with his daily tasks. He got up and went to work. He slid irons on the people who were sent his way. He slipped them into the innermost jail cell and he never questioned what he was doing or if the people he was locking up actually deserved the treatment he, they received. And who knows how long the jailer might have kept going about his duties if not for the bone-shaking, earth-quaking act of God described here. In this story, through an earthquake, God breaks into the rigidly ordered world of a prison and shakes the stalwart stones of power. The jailer had thought he was in charge of the prison. He held the keys to all the locks. But suddenly, something dramatically changes, and the locks fall away, and the foundations of the imperial prison are shaken, 
And those keys, those locks, those signs of power and might have all of a sudden become worthless. Paul and Silas already knew this. They didn't know that they would be freed. They could have been left to rot in that jail cell as far as they knew. We don't always get the freedom and healing that we want in this world. But Paul and Silas already know that something is mightier than Rome's power, that Rome's accusations won't have the final word. Paul and Silas do not let those locks hold them back. They know that ultimately in God's plans, keys and bars and prisons are worthless. And so they sing and they sing and they sing. They sing until all the other prisoners hush until the jailer himself resting nearby can hardly help to block out the sound. Paul and Silas sing and sing. They will not be silenced. Who is powerful here? And who is powerless? And where is God? The lines aren't as clear as we'd like. We'd like to pin God down like a cosmic game of battleship. We would like to stake a claim on the moral map and say, here is God, and hold on to that position like a fortress. But slowly, we realize that when we look at the world through God's eyes, it doesn't become about power and privilege and battleship positions. As Acts teaches us, walls can quickly crumble when faced with God's might. Locks and keys and self-righteousness evaporate when confronted by God's presence. Paul and Silas know this. The jailer comes to realize this. And we are all reminded of this again and again throughout the days of our lives. Our faith is not built upon the walls of profit and privilege. Our faith is not built upon the stones of condemnation. Our faith is built upon the realization that God has something different in mind. Our faith is built upon the belief that our walls and lines of power are nothing in God's sight. God's vision is for something different. God's plan is for a world built on an utterly, earth-shakingly different status quo. After the earthquake rips through the prison, what happens next is remarkable. Paul and Silas are freed. They can escape. There is nothing holding them back Indeed, the jailer thinks that they have already left. In this moment, Paul and Silas have all the power. If they keep their mouths closed for a few more seconds, the desperate jailer will kill himself and the prisoners will be freed without any witnesses to hunt them down. But then here is the amazing moment. Paul and Silas do not remain silent. They speak up. They don't let the jailer kill himself. They shout out and say, we are here. They choose to speak and save the man who had just hours before thrown them into the prison cell. Paul and Silas have all the power in this moment, and they don't use it to break their jailer. They use it to save him. In this moment, they are teaching the jailer and the other prisoners a new way of being in the world, a new way of living. They are teaching about a new way of being in relationship with each other, a relationship built on mutual care rather than hierarchical dominance. 
In this moment, Paul and Silas are taking responsibility for this man. They are revealing how their hope and their faith are somehow bound up in his hope and his faith. In this moment, an old status quo is being transformed. An old understanding of power is being shaken to its core. The jailer begins to understand this. He falls to his knees. He's realized, he has realized that these men have saved him, that they had a power in their hand, and they chose not to use it in the way he expected. The jailer wants to know what has changed them. What has changed Paul and Silas from the old way of understanding the world? He wants to know how he too can be saved from the emotional, political, psychological, and spiritual bars in which he is locked. He asks how he can be saved from his prison. And Paul and Silas reach out and they teach him. They teach and speak words of love and fellowship. And then the jailer washes their wounds. He washes the wounds of his prisoners. His hands, which had last touched their limbs in order to shackle them, now bathe them with tenderness and care. These men he so recently threw into the pit, he now invites into his home to sit at the table with his family. A lot has been done in the name of Christianity over the generations. A lot of pretentious words and awful deeds have been done while wielding the rhetoric of Christian faith. But I would venture to say that here, here in this scene of the early church, here is the heart, the essence of our Christian faith. Here is the jailer and the prisoner caring for each other. Here they are connected by so much more than the world's labels or lines of power. When Paul calls out to save the jailer and when the jailer stoops to wash their wounds, our old understandings of power fall away. This scene reveals the heart of our faith. These people embody the heartbeat of the early church. And now, through faith and grace, our power and resources are no longer something we use to dominate. They are something we use to teach and to share and to care for each other. Who has the power here? Who is powerless? We will all find a time when our walls of conviction are shaken, when our possessions of control are taken from us. We will all find a time when our plans are shattered and our power is toppled. We will all face a time when we are forced to ask questions about whether we really are as right and just and moral as we want to be. We will all have to face this. The key is what happens next. How will we respond Will we work hardest to rebuild our sense of privilege and control? Will we keep going about our work because it is our duty, ignoring the cries of the prisoners around us? Or will we reach out to care for each other? Will we choose to see our lives as bound up in each other? Will we give up our pretensions of power and instead cast ourselves upon a grace and a love that is more powerful than we can imagine? When the walls topple and prisons are shaken, will we use our voices to shout out 
to save each other? Will we stoop to wash each other's wounds? Will we hope and work and dream for the day when we might break bread not only with friends but with strangers and even by God's grace with enemies? Will we hope and work and dream for this day? By God's power, may it be so. Let us pray. Lord, you give us images of your might and your power, and they are nothing like we know in this world. And you give us images of your love and your care, and they transform our way of understanding love. Your love and care and power is more magnificent than we can imagine. And so we commit our lives to discovering you in the love and relationships and compassion that we share with each other today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.